0: Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Let's get into the Word. Are you ready? Someone say yes. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we have been in a series for the last six weeks entitled By Faith, and if this is your home, you know that it's more than a series. It truly is the heartbeat of the Father's house in 2022. Uh, We we felt like at the beginning of this year, we had a word from God to elevate our expectations, to begin to increase our faith, to pray bigger prayers and uh, trust God in ways that we've never trusted him before, and to step into a by faith, not by sight kind of life style. And as a result of that we've been looking at this scripture in Hebrews chapter well a uh, chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, where the lives of some individuals that came before us, the great men and women of faith are, are displayed uh, for the purpose of encouraging us to live this radical by faith kind of life. And uh, as the title suggests, all of their stories start off with those two words, by faith. And then there's a blank they fill in with their lives. By faith, Abel gave the first and the best. By faith, Enoch walked with God. By faith, Noah built a boat. And a few weeks ago, we got into the study of our great-great-grandfather, Abraham, probably a few more greats than that, but Abraham, the father of our faith. And we looked at how by faith, Abraham left Haran without knowing where he was supposed to go. We determined that by faith, sometimes we have to walk into the unknown. God calls us out of places before he tells us where we're going. But in obedience, we choose to leave that space and trust that he's going to lead us in the direction that he's calling us. And then last week, we looked at the story of his wife, Sarah, and we determined that by faith, her and Abraham were able to conceive a child, despite the fact that they were quite past the age of childbearing. Uh, And today we're going to look at the last statement that Hebrews 11 makes of Abraham, this by-faith statement. I got a lot of content today, so we're going to get right into it. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 reads like this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named." He reckoned that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We're going to focus in mostly on that first sentence. By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac. Now, that is a bit of an alarming statement without context. Like if you're new to church and you're new to the Bible, like, okay, what are we talking about today? Like sacrificing our children? That seems like a very odd sermon in a Masonic building, Pastor Tim. (laughs) Fear not, this is not a sermon about sacrificing your children. But how many parents, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) There are some days, all right. Uh, but I know that not everybody is familiar with the text, the, the story that Hebrews is referring to here. So uh, we've got a lot of scripture that's going to come up on the screen, follow quickly. But I'd like to take a look at this story, this narrative in Genesis 22 that is being referred to in Hebrews 11. It says this, uh, sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah carry. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac, and he chopped the wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we're going to come back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to dad and said, hey, um, we have the fire, we got the wood. Where's the sheep that we're gonna use for the burnt offering? <laughs> and God, Abraham said, God will provide for the burnt offering, my son. They both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on your boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named that place Yahweh Yireh, unless, of course, you are a Southern Pentecostal, in which case it's Jehovah Jireh. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Long story, but a lot to unpack there. So, so let's, let's pray, and we're going to get into this. If you're a note taker, I want to offer this title for the chat today. I want to call it The Reckoning. The reckoning, a provocative title, but one that I think will be transformative before we leave this place. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Thank you for the opportunity to come together as a community to your word. More importantly, thank you that your word has the power to transform our lives. And as we study a text that might be familiar to many of us today, I ask that you would speak to us in a fresh way. That we'd be able to see this story from a different angle. And that you would transform our hearts, our minds, and therefore our lives By the time we walk out of these doors today, we love you and we thank you in advance for what you're gonna do. And the church said, amen, amen. I think this story in Genesis 22 is probably one of the richest passages of scripture in the Old Testament. There's so much application in this text. I suspect we could probably do an entire series just on the verses we read a few moments ago. And even after three, four, 12 weeks, we would not be able to mine all of the gold that is contained in those verses. Uh, And in true transparency, uh, this is in fact the third time I have preached on that text in our short tenure as a church. And even this week, as I was studying this familiar passage again, I was reminded that you can read the same verse over and over and over and over again. And yet God provides fresh revelation for your life specific to where you're at. His word is alive and active. One of my favorite things about the word of God is that you can't read it without it reading you. And he knows exactly where you're at and he will use his word to speak to your situation. And and fear not, although I have preached on this text before, today's message will be uniquely different than the ones we've heard in the past. But I, I do feel the need to borrow an introduction from one of those sermons because I think we need to understand how formative this passage of scripture is to the Christian faith. Um, In Genesis 22, we witness a number of firsts. Uh, When you come to scripture and you learn to, to study it and dissect it, there's a number of rules or laws that we use in the breaking down of scripture. And the fancy word for it is hermeneutics. And one of the laws of hermeneutics is something called the law of first mention. The law of first mention states that anytime something happens in the Bible for the first time, you need to pay particularly close attention because there is a pattern that is being established that will remain for the entire council of Scripture. And there are a number of those first mentions that are establishing precedent in Genesis 22. For example, this is the first time in the Bible where the word worship is mentioned. And in context, it is an act of obedience and not a feeling. Abraham did not feel like sacrificing his son. It was an act of obedience to God. He turns to his his servants at the bottom of the hill and he says, me and the boy, we're going to go up and we are going to worship. Speaking of the fact that he was about to sacrifice his son, but then he said, we will come back down. What is that telling us? It's telling us that sometimes worship is an act of obedience and not a feeling. Sometimes you don't feel like worshiping. I know there's some days you walk into church and like, a thousand hallelujahs, I magnify. Take your flags and you go for it. <laughs> but then there's some days where you feel like you're walking through hell and high water and you just want to stick your hands in your pocket and you do not want to lift up your voice no matter how much the person on the stage is telling you, lift up your voice! But according to this pattern... If you have never worshipped when you don't feel like worshipping, then you've never truly worshipped. Because true worship is an act of obedience because of how good God is, not how I'm feeling in the moment. First. Another first, which we've mentioned already in our exhortations earlier, is this is the first time that God reveals himself in Scripture as a provider to his people. Again, it is in the act of obedience and sacrifice. It says, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Speaking to the fact that Abraham was laying down his son, and in that act of sacrifice, a ram in the thicket, a substitute, was provided. What's the pattern being established? In sacrifice, we receive God's provision on the other side of our obedience. This is why every single week here at the Father's house, someone is up here, sometimes it's me, running their mouth about giving and tithing up here. It's not because we're money hungry. It's not because we're broke, we're doing just fine. It's because we want this community to be intimately acquainted with Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides for every single one of our needs. That's what we want. And then the soundtrack comes in. Jehovah Jireh, my provi- How many went to that church? Okay. <laughs> like four people, yeah. <laughs> Be grateful that this is your church experience and not that one. But those are not the firsts I want to discuss today. There's a first in here that I think is, is universally applicable to our lives. And this is what I want to camp on for the remainder of our time together. This is the first time in scripture that we see the word testing. It's the first time that God shows us that he tests his people, says that Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac to God. After this moment, that word testing will show up some 75 times in scripture. But again, remember, the first sets precedent. And if this is the first time that we see that word, then we would be wise to consider what is the context whereby testing is being introduced to this lifestyle of faith? And for that, I want to offer you this thesis. If you're a note taker, you can, you can write this down. But I want to suggest that our faith is proven in the surrender test. The test of surrender is where our faith is proven. Uh, let me check. How many of you really enjoy being tested? That's about what I expected. <laughs> Yeah, no, nobody likes getting tested. No one likes taking tests. There's some of us, well, some of you that are good at taking tests, uh, but I've yet to meet somebody in my short nearly 40 years on the planet that says, you know what I really enjoy? In my spare time, I love to go take tests. No one likes that. But in addition, I think we could all universally agree that there is something worse than a test, and that is a surprise test, the pop quiz. The test that you were not expecting. Even if you know the material, even if you know you can pass the test, in that moment when you are presented with a surprise test, you immediately start sweating and doubt whether or not you have the ability to answer the questions correctly, right? Anyone experienced that before? It happened to me just this last week, and it wasn't a serious one, but it was a test that caused me to get a little bit nervous. Um, For the first time ever, I I decided to use this technology attached to our bank this week called Zelle. Anyone ever used Zelle before in your bank? Okay, apparently there's a lot of fraud going around with Zelle right now. And uh, I experienced the bank's ability to make sure that fraud did not happen on our account this week when I tried to send some money out. Uh, I I sent money, it was immediately declined, and I thought, man, I'm pretty sure we have the money in the account for that. Uh, and within seconds, I got a text message from my bank. I got an email from my bank and a, the phone rang. And on the other side of the phone was a, a lady who worked for our bank. And she immediately started to grill me to make sure that I was in fact trying to send this money out. She said, is this Mr. Biddle? I said, yes, it's Mr. Biddle. She said, saw that you tried to send the money. I said, yes, I tried to send the money. She said, okay, we need to verify that you are who you say you are. Uh, can I have your account number? Yes, here's my account number. Can I have your debit card number? Yes, here's my debit card number. Can I have your PIN? <laughs> I'm starting to get a little nervous at this point. Like, wait a minute. Should I be giving you this information? But she, she was legit. And, and so I figured I had offered all that I needed to offer to validate that I am who I say I am. And yet after I answered all these questions, she's like, okay, now I need to administer a little test. And I'm like, who is this right now? She's like, we need to make sure that your identity is verified by answering a few questions to determine that you are in fact who you say you are. And I should know how to answer those questions, right? I'm Tim. I should know how to answer the Tim questions. <laughs> Like, I should not be nervous about this, but immediately, as soon as he said, you're gonna get tested, like, my palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy, there's vomit on my sweater already, mom spaghetti. Yeah, come on, Eminem, halftime today, let's go. Get warmed up. So she starts asking me all these questions uh, Which of the following addresses have you ever been associated with? A, B, C, D. Which of the following licenses do you hold? A, B, C, D. Uh, where was the, or uh, what mortgage company have you used in the past? A, B, C, D. Where's that inconspicuous birthmark on your body? A, B, C, D. You know, just, it was grilling me. So I, I'd like to report I answered all of the questions successfully, and I am, in fact, Tim Biddle, okay? Just to make, <laughs> it was a pitiful applause. Thank you. Okay. I was proud of myself. But in the moment, it didn't matter that I knew the answers to the test. I didn't like that it was a surprise. Like, it just, it caught me off guard. Well, let me help those of you who don't like being caught off guard by some testing. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just warn you right now, here in this room on a Sunday morning, buckle up, there's gonna be some testing. (laughs) You will not make it through this life as a follower of Jesus without facing consistent tests. The Apostle James, in the first chapter of his book, he writes this, consider it joy, smile, when you face tests of many kinds. He does not say if, he says when. It is inevitable. If you're going to do this thing called Christianity, if you're going to walk on this journey of faith, you will find yourself consistently being tested. But it's not because you serve a cruel God that wants to flunk you or pass you. In the middle of your testing, we need to remind ourselves the purpose for God's tests. And again, if you are a note taker, I want you to write this down. Here is the purpose of testing testing determines your eligibility for promotion. It determines whether or not you can leave where you're at and get to where God is calling you to be. As it is in the natural, when you are tested, you're determining whether or not you've retained enough from this season to make it into the next season. In fact, that's contained even in the definition of the word. In, in the English, test is defined like this a procedure intended to establish the quality, the performance, or the reliability of something, check this out, especially before it is taken into widespread use. How many want to be used by God? Most of us. Okay. You're going to be tested before you are eligible to be used. Widespread use. Before God knows I can entrust this person to the influence and the opportunity and the affluence or whatever it is that I'm opening up for them, they need to pass this test to ensure they are eligible to be promoted to the next season. And the test, as inconvenient as it may seem, that God likes to use over and over and over again is the surrender test. The willingness to surrender it all to him, whether it's the resources or the opportunity or the plan you got for your future or the relationship or whatever it is, you will find yourself in the surrender test. And not only is the test very familiar, the location whereby it is issued is also very similar. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will often find yourself in a classroom that looks a whole lot like this, an altar. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to bring him to a hill that I will show you. So Abraham goes and he collects the wood. He grabs the fire. Dang it. Grabs the knife, the instruments that he's going to use to sacrifice his child, stacks the wood on the donkey, and he takes off. By the time they arrive at Mount Moriah, he looks at the servants, he says, hey, me and the boy, we're gonna go up on the hill, we're gonna worship. And the Bible says that he stacks the wood that will be used for his son's sacrifice on Isaac's shoulders. And when they get to the top of the hill, Abraham builds the altar where he intends to lay his child's life down. Then he binds Isaac's hands and his feet And he lays him on top of the altar. And as Isaac is laid upon this place where his life is supposed to be taken, the test starts. Now, I know that might sound awkward because like, what do you mean the test starts? You already did all this other stuff. None of that matters if he doesn't follow through at that moment. All of it is pomp and circumstance. God did not tell him to build an altar. God did not tell him to grab a knife or fire. God told him to surrender his son. You can do a lot of things that look like obedience, but until you get to the moment where you're tested, that obedience isn't really proven. And Abraham has a decision to make. Will I fail this test, take my son back down the hill with me, or will I lift the knife and sacrifice this child that I waited for this good thing that I love, yet God seems to be asking me for. Now, we have the convenience of knowing the end of the story. We know that Abraham indeed lifted the knife, had every intention of leaving his son on the top of that hill. But this sermon is not about applauding Abraham's faith. He already passed his test. This sermon is about assessing our faith. So the question becomes... When we find ourselves standing at an altar facing the surrender test, do we lift the knife or do we excuse ourselves from the test and go back down the mountain? Let me tell you what I've noticed. I've noticed that it's actually really easy to get to this point. It's not difficult to get to the point where you're standing at the altar. I know sometimes we try to complicate our faith and we're like, I just don't know what God wants me to do. Yeah, most of the time we do. Most of the time we're clear on what the Holy Spirit is asking of us. We've been in the presence of Jesus. We know what he's asked us to surrender. Getting to the point of the altar where it's built and we're laying some things down, this is not challenging. This is actually rather easy. It happens here on Sundays every single weekend. Whether literal at the altars or proverbial in your seats, there's a moment where people respond to what God is saying to them. Hey, I want you to lay that relationship down. I want you to lay that opportunity down. I want you to lay that unforgiveness or that disappointment or whatever it is, I want you to lay it down on the altar. Getting there is easy, but then the test comes. What test? Will I leave the thing that I laid on the altar or will I pick it back up and go back home with the thing that God has asked me to surrender. Here's what I found in my life. It is very easy to lay, it is much more difficult to leave. It becomes incredibly challenging to leave those things at the It's easy to sing those old hymns. I surrender all. I what well we should be saying, I surrender most. I surrender some. <laughs> Because when the song is over and the tears stop falling and the moment has ended, what many of us do is we take that offering that we laid on the altar and we bring it right back home with us. And the reason we lay it but we don't leave it is because deep down, if we're honest, we're not ready to let that thing die yet. We're okay if the altar is this magical place where God makes it better. God, I'll lay it on the altar so that you can make him a Christian. (laughs) I'll lay it on the altar so that you can bedazzle my future and make it so much better than my version of it. We're okay if the altar is this magical place of transformation as long as I can take it back into my possession and then I can run with it the way I want to run with it. But to leave it and to let it die... I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. And yet Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and it dies, it will never produce a harvest. Translation, the things which we are unwilling to lay and leave on the altar and let die hold the greatest possibility of keeping us from the life that Jesus has on the other side of it. We just don't want to let it die. Let me say it like this. If the surrender test is what allows us to be proven so that we can be promoted, then a failure to leave is to fail the test. And you know what happens when you fail a spiritual test? You have to take it over and over and over and over again until you pass it. And I wonder how many of us are here this morning going up and down and up and down, traversing the same path up a familiar mountain, coming to the same stack of wood, because we've learned how to lay, but we don't know how to leave the offering on the altar. I wonder how many of us are frustrated in our faith, feeling like we're not making any progress because we haven't passed this test yet. But not Abraham. Not not this great man of faith. One shot. Pop quiz, he passed the first time. The next morning, yes, God, I will obey what you're asking me to do. Abraham comes and he lays his son on the altar and he passes the test. Now, when I see faith like that, I say to myself, I want to be like Abraham. I want to be the kind of person who doesn't just follow Jesus when it's convenient, as long as he is going to bless what I put on the altar. I want to be the kind of guy that lays everything down at the altar and leaves it there, knowing that he knows best for my future. I I want to be like Abraham. But if we're going to be like Abraham, if we're going to have that kind of by faith lifestyle, We need to answer a question, a question I was forced to answer myself this week and one I wanna pose to all of us. Where did Abraham find this faith? This is not normal faith. This is not run of the mill, come to church on a Sunday morning, bless God, hallelujah, eat a couple donut holes and go back home kind of faith. (laughs) This is the real stuff right here. This is an impossible request. Abraham, lay down your child on an altar On a mountain, I will show you. That is an insane amount of faith. And and if I'm being transparent, for me, it's also also pretty personal. The, The irony of being the guy on stage talking about the father who had to lay his kid on an altar is not lost on me right now. For as many of you know, my wife and I find ourselves on a similar mountain facing a very similar surrender test. I shared last weekend, for those that may not know, uh, in the fall of last year, our daughter had a couple of surgeries, which uh, left her with some complications, and as a result, the portal vein that feeds the blood to her liver is filled up with blood clots right now, and uh, we have passed the timeline whereby those clots would dissolve on their own, and despite blood thinners and other things that the doctors have asked us to do, uh, she has not improved. Uh, And this last Wednesday, like the previous Wednesday—I'm learning to hate Wednesdays— we received yet another dose of bad news after a GI scope. Uh, they determined that the veins in her system that connect to the other veins trying to feed blood to her liver right now are all backed up with blood and it's not flowing the way it's supposed to. And you got to love it when doctors are like, I'm just not quite sure what we're going to do. I, I, I'm confused. We're going to have to go see some specialists. We don't know how to handle this situation. So rest assured, if there is anyone in the room today that would like to know where to source the faith it takes to lay their kid on an altar so that they can pass this test, it's the guy standing on the stage talking right now. Where do we find this kind of faith? And as I wrestled with that question this week, the Holy Spirit brought me back to our our key text in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, a single word in our key text that I think holds the key to finding this kind of faith. Here, here's what it says in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 19. It says that Abraham reckoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. He reckoned. Isn't that a fun word? Makes you want to get a southern draw, doesn't it? I reckon. You reckon? I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> a reckon. Reckon is a pretty powerful word in the Greek. In the Greek, the word reckon is the word logizomai, And it's where in the English we get the word logic or logical, which seems like an absolutely asinine word to use in this text, doesn't it? Abraham logically concluded that God was able to bring dead people back to life. <laughs> what? Logically? Sometimes you just got to stop yourself when you're reading the Bible and you're like, okay, there's nothing logical about this at all. Did, did, did Abraham see God raise someone from the dead that we're unaware of, that isn't contained in the counsel of Scripture? Like, what do you mean logically? But let's look a little deeper because the definition of this word in the Greek reads like this. To compute, to calculate, to take into account. In other words, this was not blind logic. This was logic that was based on a calculation, based on some evidence, some computation. Abraham gathered together the evidence and determined, based on what I know to be true, God is able to bring dead things back to life. Which should make us ask, what numbers is Abraham crunching here? What evidence did he see that caused him to conclude that he served a God with a resurrection power? I'll tell you what evidence he was considering. The same evidence we looked at last weekend. Wait, what evidence are you talking about? Well, let's, let's jog our memories, shall we? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 12. And so a whole nation came from this one man, Abraham, who was as good as dead, A nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. Fast forward, Paul says it in Romans 4. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he'd become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb as good as dead. Where did Abraham find the evidence? He looked back at his own life. He said, wait a minute. I was as good as dead. And yet God brought life from a man and a woman who were as good as dead. This was already an impossible situation that I've witnessed God's power in. And if he brought me and Sarah back to life to produce Isaac, then I'm gonna lay Isaac on this altar because I am logically concluding based on what I've seen God do in the past, if he did it before, he can resurrect once again. (laughs) He reckoned because he'd seen it before. And since he reckoned, he passed his test. Which means... If I'm gonna pass this test, if I'm gonna have the faith necessary to lay my kid on an altar without knowing the outcome, if you're gonna pass your test, you know what we need? We need a reckoning. We need to be able to reckon that God is able to bring dead things back to life. Now, this is where some of us start to object. How am I supposed to do that? (laughs) I have not seen what Abraham saw. I am not a hundred years old. My womb is still operational. (laughs) I have not experienced the same miracle that Abraham experienced. So how do I reckon what Abraham reckoned when I have not seen what Abraham saw? To which I would reply, but haven't you? (laughs) Haven't you encountered the God that brings the dead back to life? Haven't you experienced the resurrection power of this God who encountered Abraham on a mountaintop? I suggest to you, you have. Because at the end of the day, as we've stated with all of these Old Testament stories, while this is an accurate historical account of a guy who went to the top of a mountain with his son and laid him on an altar, ultimately, it's about something bigger. It's a foreshadowing of an event that affects every single one of us in this room. For a couple thousand years after Abraham and Isaac found themselves on the top of this mountain, another father would send his son to the top of the exact same geographical mountain. And just as Isaac carried the wood for his altar up the side of that mountain, this son would carry the wood for the altar on which he would be sacrificed on up the side of the exact same hill. And just as Abraham lifted the knife to take his son's life, Jesus did not die at the hands of Romans. He died willingly at the hands of his father. He allowed his hands to be bound and his feet to be bound. And he allowed the Romans to pierce his hands and feet and nail him to that cross. Only this time there was not a ram in the thicket to save him at the 11th hour because ultimately he was the lamb that Abraham's story was speaking to. As Isaiah says, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the father would leave his son on top of Golgotha to die. But the story would not end there because just as Isaac, after a three-day journey, received his life back from the dead, so Jesus would be resurrected from a grave. Three days later, walk out and make salvation available to every single person sitting in this room today. For all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, salvation comes to you in that moment. But it doesn't end there. Wait, there's more. Because you haven't just received salvation, have you? No, you also received His Spirit. Romans 6.10 says the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives on the inside of everybody who is called upon his name. So don't tell me you have not experienced resurrection power. Don't tell me you have not witnessed this God who brings the dead back to life. Not only have you witnessed it, his power is living on the inside of every person who's called upon his name. (laughs) Resurrection power is inside your bones. And just as God would take a man as good as dead, And cause life to spring up from him. When you were filled with the spirit of God, every dead place in your life because of sin was awakened to the life that is available in Christ. So yes, my friend, you have seen what Abraham saw. And if you've seen what Abraham saw, then you can reckon as Abraham reckoned. You can pass the surrender test because you have personally encountered the God that brings dead things back to life, he's living in you. So so let me ask this question, in fact, as we conclude and the band comes, a question that I think we'd all be wise to consider before we leave today. What sits on this altar in your life right now? What have you been asked to surrender? How many trips up and down the mountain are you willing to take? Are we ready to lay it down? Where do I find the faith? It's in you already. It's there. I think one of the most frustrating things about the Christian journey is taking lap after lap after lap around the same mountain, feeling like you can't make any progress because you haven't passed this test. I believe in Jesus' name, there's some people that are gonna pass the test today. They're gonna finally leave that thing at the altar. In fact, I want to pray over you as we conclude. I want to pray that Abraham's faith, that the faith that comes by the filling of the Holy Spirit would compel you to leave some stuff on the altar today. I know that you got parties and games and stuff to get to, but I I promise you there's nothing more important than this moment. Maybe you've been coming to church for 10, 15, 20 years, and you've been stuck for equally as, as much time. Lay that thing down and leave it at the altar today. In fact, let's just allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts for a moment. Just bow your head and close your eyes and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What is that thing? Speak to us today. I feel like for somebody in the room, it's it's unforgiveness. The thing they did to you, the way they hurt you, You've laid that person or that situation down at the altar, but you just keep picking it back up. Every time the name comes up, every time the situation comes to memory, it's like that wound is fresh once again. Jesus is saying, hey, I I already paid the price to cover that one. I know it wasn't right, but just could you leave it at the altar today? I felt this in the first service. I'll feel it again right now. Just that maybe there's somebody who you've sensed God tapping on your heart and saying, I've called you to this. This is, this is what the future of your life looks like, but you've already gone so far down another path or another road and making your own plans for your life. And it feels impossible to, to abandon that path to walk on his. God's saying, will you just leave that, blueprint you have for your future on the altar today? I promise the one I have for you is so much better. Come on, what is it? What is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about? And maybe for some in the room as we're considering that question, maybe you would say, hey, Tim, the the thing that I know needs to sit on the altar is, is me. I need to lay my life down. Talking about this God who brings death, dead things back to life and This God that fills us with his spirit. I I don't know that I have that. I I haven't laid my life down to, to follow Jesus. Luke chapter six, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, they need to take up their own cross to follow me. They lay down their life, but in laying down your life, you receive the life he has for you in return. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you know that you need to get some things right with Jesus before you leave this place. I wanna pray with you if that's you. I just want you to even see yourself symbolically laying the entirety of your life on an altar. And, and I'm gonna pray a prayer that I'd like you to follow along with me in your heart. But as we pray that if you need to commit your life to Jesus today, um, I would like to see who I'm praying with so that I know the face as I come before God and pray for you la- later on this week. If you need to get things right with God before you leave, before we pray, would you quickly lift up your hand and look at me so that I, I know who I'm praying with? Thanks, bro, I got you. Yeah, right on, man. Yeah, right over there, bro, awesome yes got you got you right over here ma'am hallelujah yeah in the back hallelujah thank you oh right on bro yeah sorry i didn't mean to miss you there all right let's let's pray this in your heart with me just say jesus today i give you my life i lay it on an altar you have all of me i'm tired of trying to do it on my own today i surrender everything confess that you are my Lord I believe that you resurrected and because you walked out of that grave I can find new life in you help me to be your disciple to walk in your ways from this day forward until that moment where I see you in eternity and you look me eye to eye and you say well done good and faithful servant enter into the joy that has been set before you I thank you that as I give you all of me today I receive all of you in return. Pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. Come on, let's thank God for all those making that decision this morning. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.